If we haven't met, I'm Kimberly, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this community and for the invitation to share today. And this passage that we're reading, it's got some color. Am I right? This morning, we are talking about resurrection. And so I would love to start with a question, and that is, when you think about resurrection, what images come to mind? For me, when I hear the word resurrection, I think of a friend of mine from Chicago who wouldn't use the word Easter and instead made a very vocal point of calling the day Resurrection Sunday and made sure her kids knew they were hunting resurrection eggs. And so the image that pops into mind for me first is of Easter paraphernalia, specifically for some reason neon colored peeps, (laughs) resurrection peeps, if you will. We're coming up on Easter, and when we celebrate the resurrected Christ, as we celebrate, we love these images of spring. Pastel flowers, chicks, bunnies, eggs. Partly because, let's be honest, the early church co-opted an existing fertility festival as it created its own rituals and rhythms. But also because spring is a sign of new life, which makes some sense, right? So if the word resurrection brings up images of Easter eggs and neon peeps, I'm right there with you. And while I find peeps very festive, and to be clear, also very gross, (laughs) this homily will not be the sugary kind. And that is because resurrection never happens without death. So as we dig into this resurrection story from Ezekiel, we're going to get a picture that's more like this. Just slightly less pastel and adorable, right? (laughs) Now I'm here for cuteness. Ben likes to tell people that my official title is Sunshiny Princess of Awesomeness. (laughs) But this morning I feel like we need to talk about the gritty realities of resurrection before we get to the celebration that comes afterward. And I've been thinking and praying about this homily for months, and early in the process, it became clear to me that God was inviting me to share a hard story today. And I'm going to share it because it is such a story of resurrection in my life. But before we get there, I want to make sure you feel permission to take care of yourself because this morning we'll talk briefly about sexual assault. And I want you to feel full freedom to stand up and take a walk if that is what serves you this morning. And just to be crystal clear, you never need anyone's permission to protect your peace by walking away from something that feels harmful or triggering. But I also know that many in this room grew up in church spaces that taught differently that may have asked you to ignore the cues of your nervous system and then called that respect. So if you, like me, are a work in progress in this area, I just want you to feel such freedom to do whatever feels right and good for you in this moment, and really any moment. (laughs) And when we get there, I will keep it short and light on details, and I will let you know when it's coming. Deal? Deal. In just a couple of weeks, We will celebrate Easter, which is, of course, the resurrection our faith hinges on. It's lovely and joyful, but it doesn't come without the cross. It's easy to accidentally gloss over Good Friday, 
yeah, Jesus died, but he was God. And also we have the Bible now. And so we can just fast forward to the good part. We know how this story ends. And so we can take a shortcut past the grief. But when we think of Easter as a story that is just to be celebrated rather than a story to be lived, we may miss out on some of what God has for us. Long before the cross, resurrection, bringing something dead back to life, is woven into the story of scripture in so many ways. And no one experiences resurrection without experiencing death. Now some resurrection is metaphorical, maybe most of it, which means that death is metaphorical too. In fact, to be clear, this passage that we're in is a vision that God gives Ezekiel, not a historical account. And at the very end of Ezekiel's retelling, we get a glimpse into what God is doing because Israel has experienced a death of hope. And through this somewhat gruesome story, what God is actually resurrecting for them is hope and trust. And I believe that he wants that for us too. So let's jump into this weird, not quite zombie story that we find in Ezekiel. He starts by telling us, the hand of the Lord came upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He led me all around them, and there were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophecy to these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. To put this in context, Ezekiel is a prophet to Israel, and Israel is not doing great. They are exiled under Babylonian captivity, and in this vision, the first thing that God does with Ezekiel is he surveys the damage and it's pretty grisly. But God is going to use this vision to give Ezekiel a picture of what is possible, of everything that God will restore and renew and reignite. So this one is a metaphor. But when it comes to resurrection, we may have inherited a somewhat limited, sometimes even too literal view. We may be looking at this Easter story as simply a show that God and Jesus cooked up for us to prove themselves, and maybe to bait us with an eventual reward called heaven. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not knocking eternity, but I think that there's more to this story, more for this side of heaven. Now, this could be a whole separate homily, and I promise I won't make it that, but just as a side note, I believe that people who are very invested in your understanding resurrection as something that is just for the afterlife tend to be the same people who are invested in your continued hardship and oppression. Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. 
In so many of Jesus' teachings, we can see that he is making things new here and now. His miracles often heal people in real time, including the story of his own resurrection of his friend Lazarus. Inherent in the story of resurrection is a conversation about, around what brings life and what brings death. And we see these ideas in the very framing of Israel as they wander the wilderness trying to figure out who they will be as a nation. Moses says to them, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. We could continue to reach back into scripture and see more and more of this, but we'd be here for so long. When we look holistically at the whole arc of scripture, we can easily see that resurrection is for this side of heaven too. If our faith hinges on the power of resurrection and our religious lineage instructs us to choose life now, to pray for the kingdom to break into our every day so that our lives can be restored on earth as it is in heaven, then we must make room for resurrection in our stories. But we've been sold this sort of anemic gospel, this gospel for later. And if we're honest, maybe we aren't sure if resurrection is actually possible in our stories. And if it is, then perhaps we don't trust that God is for us personally. And perhaps even deep down, we think that maybe we don't deserve resurrection. As I've been praying about this weekend, my sense is that the Holy Spirit wants to expand our vision and our imagination enough to let God into our story more fully, especially when we are mired in pain that feels like death. And I think living a resurrection story is actually part of how the human race wins over death and destruction in the grand scheme. Revelation is an admittedly very complex book, but it holds one of my favorite verses, which says, but they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, testimony is a very religiously charged word, I know, but it just means our story. What God does in our story becomes a force for good. We see this play out when Jesus resurrects Lazarus. He could have gone to him earlier, but much to the confusion of his disciples and the dismay of Mary and Martha, he held off and he waited. He knew that the story would be better, that it would be more powerful, that it would be harder to explain away if he just waited. And God used that story to encourage and amaze the people around them that day. But that story also helped spark a movement that we, in this day, are still living in. We, this morning, are still encouraged by that story. I think when we live out resurrection in front of people, something powerful happens. Something far better than talking awkwardly at people about a flimsy gospel that is just for heaven. Which is why, after a lot of prayer, I feel strongly that it's time to share this story. I've shared it before, but never at Vox or to a group this big, Definitely not in a recorded environment, but it feels important for today. So if you're on the lookout for that trigger warning, we have arrived. Let me tell you a story. 
When I was 15, I was very excited to get a job. So I convinced my parents to sign a work permit and applied at a warehouse a few miles from my neighborhood. I'm not sure why this was what I wanted to do with my summer, but I do know that I wanted money and I didn't have any. So I got this job and the work was very boring. But as a budding Enneagram 7, I managed to gamify that work. So I got better and faster at packing bigger and bigger things, which earned me a spot in another section of the warehouse, away from the easy summer work where most of the students were, and into a more permanent section of the warehouse where most of them had been there for years. Now at the time I was dating this guy, for practical purposes, my first real relationship, We'd been dating almost a year, and believe me when I tell you, our romance was pretty tame. Looking back, I feel very grateful for that. Made Jack kick off his dating life with only very tame romances. <laughs> Lord have mercy. But this warehouse was a different environment than that. And once I got moved to this new section, I worked next to this guy in his 20s who was very flirty. And he had a lot to say about my body. And at first, it felt good. I was 15 with this very Christian, very respectful boyfriend. And I was loosely Catholic at best and a bit more curious than I let on. And honestly, no one had ever seemed quite so in to me. So we'd stay after work with some of the regulars and play cards. And sometimes he'd drive me home. And I told myself it was not a big deal. But over time, he got bolder and bolder, and it felt less and less good. But by that point, I wasn't sure what to do with the situation. So I just tried to laugh it off and go along. And then I started to back away from our banter, but that seemed to really frustrate him, and then he'd get louder and less respectful when his, with his commentary. And so I ended up in this weird cycle of trying to stay close, but not too close to this guy that I worked next to in this warehouse. Late in that summer, I had a very bad day. But it was aggressively hot, and I didn't want to walk the three miles home. And so I stayed to play cards with our little group of friends. But I was mostly just waiting to go home. To be honest, I was kind of shut down. And I was sitting next to this guy on one side of a picnic table, and he started up. But I didn't answer him at all. I didn't even look at him. So he got louder, and he got more lewd, and then he started to put his hands on me. And still I could not make myself respond. Things escalated from there in less appropriate and more aggressive ways until finally someone on the other side of the table said, dude, what the hell? And he stopped. It was like he remembered where he was and snapped out of it. When it comes to sexual assault, for sure people have experienced far worse. And one of the reasons I don't tell this story often is that it's hard to categorize. Any one sentence statement I could make feels like I would be misrepresenting the facts. But while it was quick and it could have been a lot worse, it was violent and degrading and done in front of a group of people who I enjoyed and respected, none of whom said much or checked in with me afterward, and all of whom let this same person drive me home. I was 15, and I had only kissed my high school boyfriend. 
And in these few violent minutes, I had been dragged around two more bases by someone who was angry for me, with me for reasons that I did not quite understand. Things did not go well for me in the weeks after this incident. It took days to really calm down. And the more I woke up to what had happened, the more shame I felt. I was viciously angry with myself for flirting back in the first place, but especially that I hadn't done anything in that moment to stop him. I had heard about fight or flight in those days, but no one really talked about freeze or fawn. And in my mind, my inaction was all the permission he needed, and I was terrified about what those people who witnessed it were thinking about me. I did finish that summer at the warehouse, but I stopped talking to everyone. This guy's comments and gestures toward me fell all the way to mean and nearly constant. And I assumed that that was my fault too, and even outside the warehouse I was having full-on panic attacks sometimes when people touched me in even innocent ways. Went great for my tame relationship, of course. So after months of this, I finally confided some of this story to my boyfriend, who to my astonishment did not immediately break up with me. But he didn't really know how to help me either. But he dragged me to church a lot. <laughs> and eventually my loose faith graduated into a real anchor. And slowly I reemerged. The panic attacks became fewer and further between until I felt like I was really over it, no big deal. And then I went to college, and they came back with a vengeance. By this time, I was 18 and deeply entrenched in ministry. And so I had a new tool in my self-judgment arsenal, because not only was this not my fault, but I also must not have enough faith. Plus, it was the 90s, so as a bonus, we could slather a little purity culture over the story and really magnify the shame. So at some point, I found myself at a ministry retreat. Now, the Christian single scene is kind of funny, or at least it was for me. There's less dancing and making out, but there's a lot of tickling and wrestling and shoulder rubs. And honestly, <laughs> you know, some of you know. <laughs> All of those things, if I didn't see them coming, they really spun me out. So after a very innocent but particularly triggering for me game of Twister, <laughs> I found myself laying in a field outside the church where the retreat was being held and just trying to breathe. And I was crying out to God, why does this keep happening to me? And I started to sense from God that maybe he wanted to heal something in me, but I didn't feel like I deserved to be healed I felt like everything I was experiencing was my own fault, and I had caused it, and I had to be the one to fix it. So I told God, I need you to tell me if this was my fault. Now, this was a season where I really did feel like I was hearing from God often, but in this moment, God was utterly silent. No words, no nudge, nothing. So I told God, okay. I am going to lay here until you answer me. Was this my fault or not? And still nothing came, but it started to sprinkle rain. 
And I stayed in that showdown with God for hours until it was dark and pouring. And I yelled into the rain, why won't you answer me? And I felt this stillness come over me. And I heard God say, so gently, so quietly, you are asking the wrong question. Well, I didn't love that answer, but I did go inside. I spent most of the year wrestling this turmoil, and one night I was up late and I couldn't sleep, and I was praying a variation of this same prayer. Why does this keep happening? How do I get it to stop? How will I know that it's really over? And then I opened my Bible up to Isaiah, and I started reading chapter 1, and he was saying, why are you stricken again? Now, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but it sounded a lot like my question. And he goes on to say, there are wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, and they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. And I realized that I had locked this thing that happened to me behind a door and hoped that it would go away. And I hadn't been willing to let God near it until he answered me about whether or not this was my fault. But for over a year, all he had said was, you are asking the wrong question. And so at 3 a.m. that night, I finally understood in a new way. And so in my mind's eye, I walked God all the way back to this dark corner inside of me, and I opened the door. And I let him clean and dress the wound. And I fell asleep so very aware of his presence. The next day, I woke up and my whole body felt different. It's hard to explain, and I definitely don't have enough time to try, but it was like I had been carrying this heaviness around in my bones for four years, and now I wasn't. My body felt so much lighter that it felt like moonwalking, like I had to recalibrate how to step and not skip. Something had fundamentally changed in the way that I was carrying this inside of me. I know this story is hard to hear on a Sunday morning, and it was hard to tell. But when I stopped having those panic attacks, it was like God was saying to me, you shall live. When God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel's a bit cagey in his answer. He says, oh Lord, you know, right? And I think a lot of us have felt this way at times when we are surveying the damage in our own life and thinking, will I ever recover from this? Maybe we doubt his power or his willingness, and maybe we doubt our own worthiness. But God is for our healing, full stop. We add in extra layers that function like merit badges or lotteries. We question whether God is really for us. Believe me, I get it. But too often, we are asking the wrong questions. None of the things that keep us down in the mud change God's love for us. You don't run out of chances. He doesn't stop wanting your wholeness. Jesus is invested in your healing, even to the point of death. You are worth everything. 
Now, I want to stop for a moment and name something that's really important here. And that is that some of us in this room have been told to pray for resurrection in ways that have been harmful. Women who have been told that they should pray to be more submissive or to stay in an abusive marriage. Or our LGBTQ siblings who have been told to pray the gay away. And I want you to know for sure that this is not what I am talking about here. In fact, I think in these situations, resurrection often looks like someone finally and fully stepping into who they are, who God designed them to be. God is invested in our wholeness, not in our carving out pieces of who we are for the comfort of others. There is a meditation that I love, and it says, Behold the one beholding you and smiling. I read it first in a book called Tattoos on the Heart, which is fantastic. You should read it. The author, Gregory Boyle, works with gang members who are certain that God wants nothing to do with them and who keep God at arm's length because their shame runs deep. But he says, when these young men and women can imagine a God who is smiling on them in spite of the horrific things that they have done and experienced, it's then that recovery is possible. It's then that redemption really takes root. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. So let's take a minute to reflect. And I want you to ask yourself, where am I longing for resurrection? And how might trust grow as I'm inviting God into my dry places? Okay, let's continue in our story. What happens next is Ezekiel listens. So he says, I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude." Here's the thing. Sometimes there is a rattle to resurrection. Notice that this is not a snap of the finger and poof. There's no cartoon starburst next to a smiling army who have just revived in a blink. There is a rattle of bones, perhaps a squelch of sinews and muscles attaching, and then, of course, the rush of wind as breath is forced into new lungs. Resurrection is holy work, but it rarely feels easy. Sometimes when we let God into our story and we begin to move toward wholeness, we encounter resistance. Sometimes we doubt that God will complete this work in us, or we find ourselves longing for the very thing that we've been begging God to help us exit, or just when we think we've moved out of that valley of death, something sideswipes us, and we feel ourselves spiraling back down into it. Sometimes the bones are so dry, and the waiting feels never-ending, and then there's a rattle. And of course, sometimes resistance comes from the outside. 
Sometimes our people liked us better broken because our very recovery turns them toward their own work and they're not ready. You know, the Bible says that we are members of one another. And relationships and families, they love stasis. Now, stasis is just a fancy word that means we like things to stay the same so that they stay predictable. It's why people who grow up in dysfunction often feel the most comfortable in those same dysfunctional patterns. These patterns may not be serving them, but at least they know what to expect. It's actually easier to stay stuck. It's moving out of the pattern that takes work. Because when one person begins to heal, it affects the whole system. It starts a domino effect of sorts. We are members of one another. Sometimes everyone adjusts and the whole system begins to heal. And sometimes people are not ready to adjust and the whole system gets real loud for a while. It's a rattle. But resurrection is still possible. Many of you know that my mom is a recovering alcoholic. Coming up on seven years of sobriety this fall, incredible. Such a resurrection story. <laughs> when she started her journey in AA, I started my own in Al-Anon, which is kind of like a partner program for friends and relatives. And in Al-Anon, we say alcoholism is a family disease. And for much of my life, I monitored and managed my mom's drinking and did my best to guard her from the consequences when I could. I thought that I was helping, and perhaps there were times that that was true, but I was also enabling these destructive patterns and I was losing myself in the process. So long before my mom got sober, I chose to stop fixing things. I knew that for me to be whole and well, I had to stop playing my role in our family. But let me tell you, there was some real resistance when I started to move towards life in this particular way. When I stopped managing my mom's drinking, other people felt the consequences and the weight of her addiction in ways that they had been shielded from for years, maybe decades. We had to hang on through the rattle. This passage makes it clear that resurrection can be a gritty, many-layered process. And we see this all over scripture. When Jesus brings Lazarus back to life, he is bound in grave clothes. Imagine how disorienting that would be. The first thing Jesus says is unbind him. <laughs> Sometimes death looks like captivity, and it takes time to break free from the trappings of the cage that you've been in. Last week, we talked about the blind man who was healed by Jesus, who spit into the mud and then rubbed it on this man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. You've got to love Jesus in these stories. He had a lot of options available to him, <laughs> and this is what he chose. <laughs> Imagine if after liturgy today you timidly approached Wei and told him that you've been really struggling, and in response he started spitting. <laughs> Don't worry, he won't. If you've met Waylon, you know that he's the least likely person to do anything like that. But I mean, what? Jesus is doing something very messy here. But this man walks away with clear vision and a story to tell. So let's pause to reflect again. And this time I want you to ask yourself, where is resurrection feeling messy? Where am I experiencing resistance? 
Can I trust God to carry me through the rattle? But finally, even as we consider the rattling that is so often involved in resurrection, we have to keep our eye on the joy that is set before us, which is that we can emerge grounded and made new on our own soil. So let's finish the story out, okay? So Ezekiel says, Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. There are ten promises in this little story. He promises to bring them up from their graves and to make them whole, to return them to the land and put them on their own soil. He promises to put his spirit within them. Over and over again, God speaks life and wholeness over this valley of bones that anyone would have thought was unfixable. Repeatedly, he tells them, you shall live. And when he's done this, they will know who God is. They will know that he wants life for them. So one more time, let's pause. And this time, let's ask, where have I already experienced resurrection? And can I make space today for joy and gratitude? Can I sit with what God has done? Because our stories are part of how we defeat death. We celebrate Easter in a couple of weeks, the blood of the lamb shed for us. But our testimony, what God has done in our stories, this side of heaven, that's the other part. These stories carry hope, and they are part of how we all will live. They will help your people know who God is, so that they too might also behold the one beholding them and smiling. Lord, give us courage to turn toward you so that we can experience your love and care for us. Give us courage to invite you in even when death is overwhelming us. And give us eyes to see the great work that you have already done in us. Amen.